2. As we continue our journey through Mark's gospel, and uh, we've made it all the way to chapter 2, and uh, we are continuing our study uh, through it. So Mark chapter 2. While you're turning there, just let me say uh, thank you to everyone who helped, uh, whether you uh, no matter what you did during our vacation Bible school, it was a success. Things went really, really well. Uh, I'm not sure if what happened last or what happened with uh, someone I saw on Twitter happened here last week. I think I said it last week. He said they had their VBS. They had ten kids receive salvation. Nine workers lose theirs uh, during the week. Uh, I don't think that happened this week, uh, but uh, we had a joyful time. Uh, just learning about Jesus, and the kids seemed to enjoy themselves as well. And we ate really well on Friday night, good cookout, so good food. You didn't know that? Oh, it, it, uh, it, was, it was akin to heaven, <laughs> it was. Uh, but uh, good, good time, good time of fellowship. Uh, but we thank you so much for that, and continue to pray for those who were here, who heard the gospel, the kids who were taught the gospel, that... Uh, the seeds that were planted would continue to grow and God would give increase and we could see fruit from that. Uh, but in Mark chapter 2, we'll read verses 18 through verse 22. Scripture says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it and the new from the old and a worse, worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Many people have a distorted view of who Jesus really is. And sometimes it is a difficult process to bring one's view of Jesus in line with reality. In fact, when people who have a distorted view of who Jesus really is are confronted with the reality of who Jesus is as declared in Scripture, most of the time they respond in one of two ways. They either respond like the five disciples we have seen thus far in Mark, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and now Levi. They forsake all to follow him. They see him for who he is, and they follow him. Or they respond as we're going to see some others will respond, and they will run from him. Uh, they will seek to destroy him. Such is the case in Mark chapter 2. Uh, when you read through Mark's gospel, you see quickly in Mark 1 that Jesus begins his earthly ministry in a place called Capernaum. He calls four disciples to himself. He performs miracles. He heals the sick. He casts out devils. 
Crowds throng him and people come to see Jesus. They perceive him to be a wonderful teacher. They perceive him to be a mighty miracle worker. And Jesus leaves Capernaum with those thoughts fresh in the people's minds. He goes throughout Galilee. He touches a leper, heals a leper. And then he returns to Capernaum in Mark chapter 2. And with his return comes anticipation. With his return comes great crowds. But with his return comes also great controversy. Because now in this second stage of his ministry in Capernaum, Jesus is going to start challenging the perception that people have about him. He, through actions and words, is going to show them that he is more than just a good teacher, that he is more than just a mighty miracle worker. In fact, he is going to reveal his true identity to the people And the response is not quite what we might think it should be. I mean, for instance, in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Jesus does something no man, no Jew would have the audacity to do. He looks at another man and he says to him, Your sins are forgiven. In saying those words to the paralytic man in the first part of Mark 2, Jesus is declaring himself to be the God who has the authority to forgive sins. A blasphemous charge if Jesus was not God in the flesh. And then, as we saw last week in verses 13 through verses 17, Jesus calls a no good, low down, thieving, sinning tax collector named Levi to be one of his disciples. And if that wasn't enough, when Levi follows Jesus... He has a feast for Jesus at his house, calls together his friends who are also tax collectors and sinners, and Jesus fellowships with them, eats a meal with them. He receives them, showing us that the God who forgives sins is also the God who receives sinners. This causes a stir amongst the Pharisees. They don't understand how Jesus is willing to soil his reputation by reaching out and receiving the likes of those sinners. But now we come to a third controversy in this passage of Scripture. And this third controversy is one that seems to flow out of the second controversy. Now the second controversy happens when Jesus receives Levi or Levi follows Jesus and Jesus goes to Levi's house and partakes of a feast that Levi has in his honor. And so while they are at Levi's house, they are dining, they are eating, and they are enjoying the food. And there are some people there who begin to notice something. There apparently uh, is three groups of people represented there. You have Jesus and his disciples. Somehow the disciples of John are there. And then also there are disciples of the Pharisees there. And they're all acting differently. John's disciples are fasting. The Pharisees' disciples are fasting. But Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. They're acting like a Baptist at a buffet. I mean, they are absolutely feasting at Levi's. And the people start wondering, what's up with this? Why is it that 
John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples are fasting. The Pharisees' disciples are fasting. And yet, Jesus' disciples are not fasting. Now, some would look at this passage and think it's about fasting. It isn't. Uh, Fasting is just the door that opens up to us the real issue at hand. But, But before we go on, let me just say something about fasting in the passage. Uh, what type of what is fasting? What type of fasting are they talking about here? Well, fasting was a is a spiritual discipline that followers of Christ, followers of God in the Bible, oftentimes exercised uh, by going without food while they are seeking God. Uh, in the Old Testament, people fasted for different reasons. Uh, Sometimes people would fast because of the death of a loved one. Sometimes people would fast when someone was sick in hopes of praying earnestly in hopes that God would raise up someone who was sick. We see that with David and with his little son that was born to him in Bathsheba when he was sick. David fasted and repented. Some people would fast when times were bad such as in the days of Ezra, when when the children of Israel are returning back to their homeland and it was very dangerous and and, uh, very terrible times. Some people would fast out of repentance toward God. Other people would fast because of mourning. These were reasons that some people would fast. Now here's what's interesting. Only one fast in the Old Testament was required for all of Israel to participate in. And that was the fast that happened every year at the Day of Atonement. Every year on the Day of Atonement, all Israel was commanded to fast. Now, outside of the Day of Atonement fast, uh, other people fasted for those different reasons. Now, you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees would take fasting to a completely different level. Uh, They not only fasted once a year at the Day of Atonement, they also fasted twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. And they thought if you were to be spiritual, you had to fast so often. You had to fast on a weekly basis. Go without food. Uh, So let's just look at this for a moment and ask ourselves, what kind of fast is going on here? Well, I do not think it is speaking here of the annual Day of Atonement fast. Reason being, there's no mention of a feast. And Levi, who was also a Jew, would have participated in that fast as well. Even though he was a scoundrel before he was saved, they still followed that order. Furthermore, Jesus' disciples would have participated in that fast because Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to do away with it. Jesus participated in the Passover feast and the other feast. He would have participated in the Day of Atonement feasts as well. Um, but what, what are they fasting about? Here's what I think. I think John's disciples are fasting out of sorrow. If you remember back in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, we read something that's unique about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. That before Jesus begins his public ministry, something happens. John the Baptist is arrested and placed in prison. So at this moment, John's disciples are without their leader. John is put in prison. They're worried about him. They are concerned. They're probably filled with sorrow. They're seeking God, praying that John will be released from prison. And so they are saddened. It could be that they're fasting because of that. 
Now the Pharisees, it could have been a Monday or it could have been a Thursday. We don't know. But they're fasting as well. I don't think the two groups are fasting for the same reason, but they are fasting. And Jesus' disciples are not fasting. They are eating at Levi's. And so they come to Jesus. Someone comes to Jesus and they say, what's the difference? You see, this passage isn't about fasting. The passage is about this. Why isn't Jesus' disciples following the same customs and the same traditions that everyone else seems to be following in Israel? What is it about Jesus that almost makes him appear like a renegade or his disciples a renegade in this passage? So they come to him with the question, why don't your disciples fast? And so Jesus responds to their question not with a straightforward answer. Jesus responds by using pictures. He gives three word pictures. He gives three metaphors in his answer to the disciples, the question about the disciples fasting. And what I want to do is I want to walk walk through these three metaphors to see what Jesus is saying to the person who asked the question. And then at the end, I want to step back And I want us to look at Jesus in this text. And I want us to see just how this somewhat unusual text, how it points to Jesus and what it declares to us about Jesus. So when they come to Jesus with the question, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? Jesus gives these metaphors. Look what he says in verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The first metaphor Jesus uses is that of a wedding. And he says this. He says that wedding guests don't fast, they feast. They don't fast, they feast. Now, understand that in their culture... A wedding was somewhat different than ours. Uh, Our weddings, uh, usually a wedding ceremony will last at tops 30 minutes. Uh, And then you'll go to the reception, and you go to the reception, you're there for a couple of hours, maybe three, and then how does it end? Uh, It ends when the bride and groom uh, leave and they go off to their honeymoon. And uh, then it's over with. But in Jesus' culture, the wedding feast lasted much longer than this. It oftentimes lasted for days. Sometimes it would last even for a week. The bride and groom would be the the guests of honor there. Sometimes they would even wear crowns. They were treated like royalty. And guests would come and there would be a long feast and it would be a humongous celebration. And everyone there would feast. It would be unheard of to think of a wedding without food, or to fast at a wedding. Now, let's be honest. When you go to a wedding and you go to the reception, what's one of the first things you think of when you get there? What's on your mind? I wonder what they're going to have to eat. Uh, After Justin and Allie's wedding, I ran into someone who was there and I asked them, what do you think about the wedding? You know what? They never mentioned how how handsome the groom was, how beautiful the bride was. They didn't mention the, the decorations, where it was at or anything. You know the first thing they said to me? That was the best food I'd ever had in my life at a wedding. And and we stood there and talked for 10 minutes about nothing but the food. 
uh, because it was, it was good. Now, what would have happened if you'd win and you would have just said, oh, no, we're all fasting today. Uh, that's not what happens at a wedding. You feast at a wedding. And here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I'm the groom. The disciples are guests at the wedding, okay? And what I'm doing is I have brought the kingdom of God into this present evil age. And just as the guests at the wedding rejoice, just as they have a wonderful time, as long as the groom is there, as long as I am with my disciples, they don't fast because they are filled with joy. There is no mourning. There is no sorrow. There is no sadness because the friends of the groom are with the groom. And Jesus is saying they have no reason to fast right now. I am with them. But notice what Jesus does say. Jesus says, but don't worry about them. Their day's coming. He says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then... They will fast in that day. What is he saying? He's saying, don't worry about it. There's going to come a day when my disciples are going to feel sorrow. They are going to feel mourning. They are going to feel a deep urgency to, to, to seek God. They won't know what's going on. They're going to feel gloom and doom. What is he speaking of here? Well, here he is speaking, and this is the first reference in Mark's gospel that references this. He is speaking here of his arrest, of his trial, of his death, and of his burial. He is speaking of that time when Jesus is going to be snatched away from them. The verb is taken away, is passive, which means the groom's not leaving on his own accord, so to speak, but someone is taking him. Someone is taking him away. And this is a reference to his death. And if you were to fast forward in Mark's gospel, you know what happens. They come to Jesus. They arrest Jesus. The disciples flee. And they hide like cowards for those days when Jesus is crucified and he is buried. And there is deep sorrow. There is deep mourning in those days. But what is the difference? Well, during his earthly ministry, they had his presence with them. So they didn't fast. They feasted. But when he was taken away, they fasted. They mourned. And so Jesus answers them basically by saying this. Listen, they're my guests at this wedding. They, and they feast. They don't fast. But there's a second metaphor Jesus uses. Look what he says here in verse number 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does... The patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. So Jesus says, okay, listen, wedding guests don't fast, they feast. But secondly, he says, you don't sew new cloth on old clothes. You just don't, you just don't do it. Now, what is he speaking about here? Well, Jesus is saying if you have an old garment and it's got a tear in it, all right, you've worn that garment for years and there's a hole in it. You don't take a new piece of cloth and sew it onto that old garment. Reason being, when you wear that garment and it gets dirty and you wash it and you dry it, what happens? Well, the garment itself doesn't shrink because it's already been 
washed, it's already been worn, it's been washed, and it's already shrunk. But that new piece of cloth, that patch, hasn't been shrunk yet. And so whenever you wash it and you dry it, that patch will shrink. Now, if it's been sold to that garment and that garment is old, what will happen? It will tear that garment and it will make a worse tear in the old garment than what was there before. Now, what is Jesus saying in this? I mean, with the wedding feast, it's pretty easy. He's the groom. The disciples are the friends of the groom. He brings a celebration, not a funeral. Well, what's he saying here? Well, here he is likening the old garment to the religious system of the Jews, to Judaism. And he is likening himself to being that new cloth. And basically what he is saying is that he is incompatible with their religion. He is incompatible with Judaism. They do not mix. They do not go together. In fact, Jesus did not come to this earth to patch up the religious system of the Pharisees. He came to demolish it and to establish his kingdom from which he will rule and reign forever and ever. And so Jesus is saying, for me and my disciples to follow the the rituals and the rules and the traditions of the Pharisees would be like trying to sew an old patch on or a new patch onto an old garment. It will not work. And then there's a third metaphor. The third metaphor he uses is in verse 22. He says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh skins. Now this is one and the same with the second parable, but he just uses a different picture. Here Jesus tells us, you don't put new wine in old wineskins. Now what's a wineskin? Well, in the first century, um, whenever wine would ferment, they would take goat skin. And they would kill goats. They would skin the goat as whole as possible. And uh, they would use the skin to ferment wine. They would sew the skin up and they would put fermenting wine in the goat skin, in the flask. And as the wine would ferment, it would release gases. And if it was in a new skin, the new goat skin was elastic. It could stretch and it would stretch with the wine. And so you could put the fermenting wine in a new skin and as as the wine fermented, and the gases would be released, then the skin would stretch and it wouldn't bust it. But if you have an old skin that's already been stretched, and you put new fermenting wine in the old skin, and it goes through the fermentation process, well, it would put so much pressure from the inside on the wine skin that the wine skin would bust. And when the wine skin busts, you've got a double problem. You would lose the wine skin and you would also lose the wine. So what is Jesus telling us here? Again, I think in the old wine skin, you have a picture of the Jewish religious system. You have a picture of their rituals, a picture of their traditions. And in the new wine, you have a picture of that which Jesus came to bring. That is salvation, his kingdom, and the joy that he brings. And what he's saying again is this, is that he is incompatible with the old way. He did not come, again, to to fill up the old way. 
No, he came to establish a kingdom that will last forever and ever and ever. And when you try to mix Jesus with the law, and you try to mix Jesus with tradition, and you try to mix Jesus with ritual, and you try to mix Jesus with law-keeping, you don't end up with any. You end up losing everything. Because you don't get Jesus, and you don't get a system that is honored by God. And what Jesus is saying to those who ask the question is this. My disciples are acting differently because I have come to make things new. I have come not to put a patch on the old way. I've come to obliterate it and I've come to supersede it. And so we must ask as we look at this text, what then does it teach us about Jesus? What do these metaphors teach us about Jesus? Because again, the point of this passage is not fasting. The point of this passage is why isn't Jesus' disciples following in the same footsteps of the disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist? And they're acting differently because Jesus is different than John. And Jesus is different than the Pharisees. In fact, he comes for a different reason. But what does this teach us about Jesus? Well, first, it teaches us something about his presence. And here's what it teaches us. That his presence brings joy. His presence brings joy. Again, we go back to the picture of the bridegroom and the guests of the bridegroom. Just as the guests of the groom are filled with joy whenever they are with the groom at the feast, so too Jesus' presence fills those who know him with great joy. The Bible describes joy as the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the possessing, by possessing what one desires. Delight. Do you know why people who know Jesus have joy? They have joy because they now possess that which they long for, that which they delight in. They now possess that which they desire. Now, the disciples didn't fast when they were in the presence of Jesus Because in the presence of Jesus, they had what they longed for. They had what they desired. They had what they had waited for. The Messiah had come. The one in which they had been waiting for had come. I mean, what parent, after waiting for nine months to see that baby as it is growing inside of its mother's womb, what parent, at the birth of a beautiful, healthy baby, is sad? No, you are overwhelmed with joy. Why? Because the moment you've been waiting for has arrived. It has come. The longing is over. You now possess in your hands that which you have hoped for and dreamed for and longed for. Well, now in Jesus, they had what they had longed for. Let me ask you something. Do you have a longing in your heart that it seems like nothing in this world can satisfy Do you have a desire in your soul that no matter what you get in this world, it still seems to leave you empty and void and there's nothing that seems to be able to fill it? 
C.S. Lewis says that if I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Brother James is here this morning, and I've heard him tell his testimony over and over and over and over again when he got saved. Couldn't figure out why. He wasn't satisfied. Why? He wasn't happy. He said he had everything the world says you have to have to be satisfied and happy. He had a loving wife who who loved him. He had healthy children. He had a good job, had a house, had everything that the American dream says you have to have to be happy. And yet he was miserable. What's made the difference in him? Well, it was because he had a desire that could not be filled with a wife. A desire that could not be satisfied with a child. A desire that could not be satisfied with all the money in the world. And that was a desire for Jesus. And the great thing about Jesus is when you know Him, when you enter a relationship with Him, you realize that the one thing you've been desiring all of this time was Him. And thus, with His presence comes joy. Do you have joy? Is there delight in your soul? Well, if not, beloved, my prayer is that today you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior and His presence takes abode in your heart and in your life and you know true joy. There's a lesson about His presence to be learned, but also there's the lesson about His preeminence. Now, with the three metaphors, we see something that is crucial. And that is Jesus is greater. He is greater. What do I mean? Well, who's greater, the bridegroom or the guests of the bridegroom? The bridegroom is greater. I mean, you know, you don't go to a wedding and leave and think, boy, didn't those groomsmen look good. Now, you know what? A week down the road, you look back on the wedding, you can't even remember who the groomsmen are. You don't remember their names. You don't even remember what they look like. You remember the, you remember the groom. He sticks out. And it's supposed to be that way. Well, and so it is here that Jesus is greater than his disciples. He's greater than all. The new piece of cloth is greater than the old piece of cloth. It's more valuable. It's better. The new wine is greater than the old wineskin. All of that is a picture of Jesus being preeminent and Jesus being greater And so it is a reminder to us that Jesus is greater than all. And it is also a reminder to us that because He is greater, that He is not an attachment. He is not an attachment. What do I mean by that? Well, He did not come just to attach Himself to your life. He did not come just to attach Himself to your good works and your deeds and, 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 and to give you strength to continue your good works and your good deeds. In other words, listen, I doubt there's anyone here that's a Jew. I doubt there's anyone here who practices Judaism. But I guarantee you this, there are people here who was either saved out of or are still in the same type of religious system that the Jews were stuck in. And it is a system that says this, You earn God's favor by what you do. You work to please God. In order for you to be accepted before God, you've got to do something. 
Your deeds must be good. Your works must be good. Your, everything that you do must be perfect in order to earn God's favor. Now, has anybody here ever been saved out of that type of system? Where you live your whole life wondering if you've ever done enough to please God. Where you try to do something to earn God's favor. Where it is something that you must attain. Well, that's the same thing that the Jews were caught up in. And beloved, listen. Jesus did not come to attach himself to that. He did not come to help you be better. He did not come to encourage you to be a better person. He did not come to say, okay, I'll give you a little bit of strength so that you can do more in order to earn the favor of God. That's not what he does. Because Jesus and your works are incompatible. Jesus and your deeds are incompatible. Jesus and your best efforts are incompatible. Beloved, he came to obliterate those things and he came to set up inside of you and to change you all over so that his kingdom, so that his life might now be yours. You see, he did not come to reform us. He came to remake us. He did not come to help us, so to speak. He came to completely change us. And there is a difference. Transformation is what he came for. Not to just help us do better. You see, he's not an attachment onto our life. No, he is preeminent. And thus, we've got to get rid of the old cloth. We've got to get rid of the old wineskin. Because Jesus is just not compatible with them. Thirdly, It teaches us his purpose. What was his purpose? Well, his purpose was not to fill up old garments or old wineskins with new wine or it was not to sew old or sew new patches onto old clothes. That's not his purpose. His purpose was to make all things new. That's his purpose in coming to this earth. And you know he does that for us personally when he saves us? You see... Jesus doesn't just change our habits whenever he saves us. He doesn't, you know, just make a liar tell the truth. He doesn't just make a drunk quit drinking. He doesn't just just come and clean up the outside of the platter. No, his purpose in saving us is to create in us all things new. Here's Here's the glory of Jesus coming. With Jesus coming, the powers and the presence of the age to come that which will be celebrated and enjoyed throughout all of eternity, invaded this present evil age. And so you have the glory of the age to come here on the earth represented in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the new age must be populated with a new people. Old age people cannot enter into a new age world. That is, people who are of this earth, of this world, cannot in their natural state enter into the age to come. So what does he do? He comes to recreate us, to regenerate us. That is, to regene us, to make us anew. And when Paul is talking about that in 2 Corinthians 5, what does he say? He says, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new what? A new 
creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Beloved, He doesn't come to patch up our tattered garments. He comes to give us a new garment of righteousness. He doesn't come to fill old wineskins with new wine. He comes to make new wineskins that can hold that which He has. And thus when He saves us, He prepares us for the age to come. He creates us anew. We are new creatures in Christ the Lord. But do you know what He's going to do? At the end of the age... He's going to do exactly what this is showing us. He's going to make all things new, not just personally with us, but he's going to do it globally. When you read Revelation 21 and 22, and you read about a what? A new heaven and a new earth coming down from God out of heaven. And and John begins to describe the glories of that city. There's someone who's seated on the throne in Revelation 21. And the one who is seated on the throne says this, I am Alpha and I am Omega. I am the beginning and I am the end. I will give to him who is a thirst of the fountains of the waters of life freely. And he says this in Revelation 21 and 4 or 21 and 5. Behold, I am making all things what? New. I am making all things new. Jesus Christ came to create a new humanity through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, who will live in a new heaven and a new earth that will enjoy a new intimacy with God like no other people have ever enjoyed. Revelation 22 says, and they will see his face. All of that, a new experience made possible through the death the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. For through that and through that alone, we are made partakers of the age to come. And you know the only people who will experience and who will enjoy the new order in the coming age are those who have been made new in Christ in this present evil age. That's it. In order to enjoy what Christ has for us in heaven, you have to know Christ here on this earth. So how will that take place? How does that happen? How does one receive a full garment for their tattered ones? How does one receive new wineskin instead of old ones? How does that happen? It happens by faith. It happens when you trust in Christ, when you believe in Christ. You see, the point of this parable, the point of this event, not a parable, this event, is to show us that Jesus didn't come to just shape up our systems. He came to make all things new. And you know, when people here heard that Jesus was the God who forgave sins and the God who forgave and received sinners, and he's the God who makes all things new, there were some who followed him, the disciples followed him. But you know how some people responded? At the end of the Capernaum controversy in chapter three. Verse 6 says this, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How? To destroy him. You know what happens when some people see Jesus for who he truly is? As the sovereign Lord of all? As the 
sovereign Son of Almighty God. Some people see Him and they fall and they worship Him and they follow Him. But there are some who see who Jesus is and they do the complete opposite. They run from Him. They want to destroy Him. They say with the leaders, we will not have this man rule over us. My question is, how will you respond today? Will you be like many others who have heard the glorious gospel of the Son of God, how He came to this earth, how He died for our sins, how He was buried and how He was raised again the third day? And will you fall at His feet in faith and repentance and trust and believe in Him as your Lord and your personal Savior? And experience the new birth being made new in Christ Jesus the Lord? Or will you hear about Christ, that He's the God who can forgive sins, And he is the God who receives sinners. And he is the one who demands that you be made new and has the power to make you new. And will you leave here running further from him, becoming harder toward him because you say, I will not have this man rule over me. Beloved, how will you respond to Christ today? Let's pray. Father, I come to you today in Christ's name. I thank you, Lord, that you are the God who makes all things new. That you came to make new creatures out of us sinners. That through your grace and your mercy and your kindness, you bore our sins in your body on the tree You died under God's wrath for us. You were buried, but you were raised again.